You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello everyone, James Abbott here and welcome to Middle East Analysis. It is the summer. Would you have guessed it? Well, probably because the weather's improved, but we, we still have our COVID-19 issues that aren't particularly going away, but that's for another podcast. Now, I'm joined by Dr. Harry Hagopian. I hope that won't surprise you because Harry is the face of Middle East analysis or the voice of Middle East analysis. Now, Harry, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you very much, uh, James. And you said we still have issues with COVID-19. You should have added we have issues with floods as well these days. I know. Isn't that the truth? And I know myself, the, the COVID stuff, because I am isolating. So this is a podcast brought to you from isolation. Um, <laughs> there you go. Well, it's a good thing that we're, we're separated virtually by a screen or whatever you call it, uh, James, because I have absolutely no inclination to have to fight uh, the COVID uh, virus myself. Yeah, quite right, too. Um Well, one thing you will be grappling with, Harry, are three realities that we're going to talk about from the Middle East North Africa region. And because it's summer and because the last podcast I said we were going to do things ever so slightly differently, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the three realities. I'll introduce those in a sec. And I'm also going to just delve into your personal experiences, because I think sometimes what we don't have on this podcast, but would be interesting for our listeners, would be just to learn a bit or to or to get your insight into what it was like in the 80s you know many moons ago when you you've basically been to these countries you've experienced the culture the people and then of course subsequently gone back a number of times over the years so hoping that you'll share a bit of bit of yourself with us today harry james do remember that i am first and foremost a lawyer so not much dirty laundry please <laughs> <laughs> well that's up to you isn't it <laughs> I'll I'll let you go as far as you want on that. But no, um, obviously it is Middle East analysis. So we will talk about those realities and they are stark and they are difficult. So it's not going to be a massively upbeat podcast, but it is going to hopefully be an honest one with with a few light touches here and there. And today we're going to be talking about Lebanon. How can we not really facing a complete meltdown in many ways. We'll be talking about Tunisia as well, because there, there is a question mark as to whether a coup has occurred there with the prime minister sacked and the, the president, you know, ordering for the parliament building to be blocked and so forth. I'm really interested in what you have to say about that. And we're also going to talk about Iraq. We heard much earlier in the year about the US pulling its troops out of Afghanistan after a long, long time. And now, of course, there's a lot of talk that, that the same will happen pulling US troops out of Iraq by the end of the year. And there's a great many other things going on, of course. There was that awful bombing in Sadr City. You know, there's always the the shadow of the US-Iran spat impacting on the country. So much to talk about, Harry. I was going to say, where do you want to start? But how about we start with Tunisia? Now, I did sort of ask the question, has there been a coup? Because all the um, news headlines I've read Obviously, that the prime minister has been sacked, 
by President Said. Um, the Parliament building, I hear, is blocked and that journalists have been ordered to leave, which is also a classic sign, isn't it? Quietening the, the mouthpieces. There have obviously been protests over the economy and in particular, apparently, the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I guess the first question, Harry, is what's your take on it and is it a coup? It's a very good question, uh, James. And, you know, when the answer to a question is it's a very good question, it means the answer is going to be a bit of a fudge. Uh, But I will try to unfudge it as much as uh, possible. First of all, let me say that uh, many people were surprised at the actions uh, taken by the uh, president of Tunisia, Qais Saeed, uh, by basically invoking Article 80 of the Tunisian Constitution, as you said, by firing uh, the uh, Prime Minister uh, Hisham Sheshi, by uh, lifting the immunity of the members of parliament, and then by blocking the gates, the iron gates of the parliament, so nobody could come in. And you're right about the journalists as well. That's a litmus test as to what's happening in a country when journalists are uh, muzzled. And interestingly enough, it happened in Gaza and elsewhere as well. Al Jazeera journalists were uh, some of the first journalists who were uh, targeted by uh, these measures. Now, why did it happen before we go to is it or is it not a coup? Actually, you're going to smile at this, but I was thinking as we you were setting up this uh, interview uh, for Middle East analysis, I was thinking what would I say in a tweet about Tunisia? And I thought I would do, I haven't done it yet, but I would do something like to coup or not to coup, that is the question. And in a sense, the reason... I think we have witnessed what we have witnessed and the way that the uh, president has acted rather drastically is, as you've put your finger on it, widespread protests over the government's handling of the coronavirus crisis. I think this is one of the key issues that forced the hand of the president because uh, Tunisia has one of the world's highest per capita death rates from COVID-19. If you look at the population there, you're talking roughly about 12 million uh, Tunisians. Only 7% roughly of those uh, 12 million have been fully vaccinated. And the death toll, to the best of my knowledge, has already topped the 18,000. So in a sense, for a small country like that, this is huge and it hasn't been dealt with properly. So I think that was one of the key issues that uh, pushed uh, the president to do what he did. And of course, there were alarm bells all over the place because Uh, You and I, as well as the whole world for that matter, have always said that uh, the revolutionary uprisings, what we used to call at the time the Arab Spring, did not really succeed very well in most of the countries, uh, whether in the first wave or the ongoing second wave, partly because of the uh, pushback by the 
rulers and the army and the authorities, and partly by the uh, counter-revolutionary forces that prevented people uh, getting their uh, rights, their citizenship rights, their dignity, their bread, their freedom, all the things that you and I uh, have spoken about. But we have always said, and I have been one of those, to say that if there is a sense of exceptionalism, it is Tunisia. Because if you look from December 2010, when, if you recall James Mohamed Bouazizi, the 26-year-old Tunisian fruit vendor, uh, self-immolated, set himself on fire because he wanted to protest government uh, corruption. And that pretty much started the Arab Spring movement. And then you move forward from there. The then uh, president, Zin al-Abidin bin Ali, fled the country. Then you had the al-Nahda, which is the Islamist, between inverted commas, moderate party, which uh, won the uh, elections in the Tunisian uh, National Assembly, the parliament. And if I'm not mistaken, some people might correct me on this, I think it's a 217 seats in the Tunisian National Assembly. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. And then one of the key issues, and I'm coming to this because I'm doing this chronology, because it sets into context the whole story of Tunisia. And one of the key issues, which already in uh, February 2013 was an indication of how things are not always hunky-dory with revolutions and uh, protests, is when a secular politician by the name of Shukri Belaid, who was an outspoken critic of the Islamist and Nahda party was assassinated. That triggered riots in the country. Then Parliament in 2014 adopted a new constitution that at the time, I remember you and I spoke about it, and I spoke on many other platforms in which I said that this is one of the most progressive and best constitutions in the Arab world. Then we had a new president, Munsef al-Marzuqi. Then we had uh, others come and take over. And finally, in 2019, I think, is when we come to today's realities, when Qais Sayyid, who actually himself is a former constitutional law professor, he ran on an anti-corruption platform and became Tunisia's uh, president. He had many prime ministers, and finally the one he's just fired, and the fired prime minister has gracefully accepted being fired. He's not going to contest that. Hishem Sheshi, uh, who was his former advisor, became the uh, prime minister, and everybody said, okay, we have a technocratic uh, government. Now, the big question, after this whole uh, storytelling, this whole contextual chronology. Uh, the question is, is it a coup or is it not a coup? I will start by saying that when I realized what was happening is because suddenly I saw pictures of people either shouting and protesting in front of parliament or alternatively dancing and singing and saying in that Tunisian, Arabic and French combined, oh, this is the best thing that could have happened, finally a good decision by this 
a president. So that tells me that the country is divided between those who support uh, the president's actions of basically suspending parliament. It's not cancelling parliament, it's suspending parliament. And those who said, oh no, I mean the whole Arab protests, the whole spring movement was basically to avoid this kind of top-down approach by rulers, by presidents, one person. And here we go again, uh, since 2010, when we thought a new dawn had basically shone on uh, Tunisia. Here we go, the three powers, the presidency, the executive, in other words, the prime minister and the legislative, the parliament, put the judiciary, the courts to one side. They're fighting each other and it never changes. Well, it's interesting because then you had reactions from abroad and everybody was looking at the reactions from abroad because internally, okay, Tunisians might disagree with each other. Half the country would say, good on you, president, and the other half would say, Mr. President, that's not right, particularly since you're a constitutional lawyer. You came on a platform of non-corruption. How can you even do that. So everybody was saying, let's see what the international reaction is going to be, particularly from the European Union and particularly from the United States. And there again, there was a fudge because it is not sure whether we can call this a coup or not. Now, I'm going to put my neck on the block. I would not call this a coup d'etat. I would be a bit careful to use those big, sensitive, volatile words, because first of all, they evoke reactions in the country. And for me, the most important thing, and fortunately, the army still has not sort of gone down the way they do in other Arab countries or North African countries by sort of coming hard on the protesters. They're trying to keep a measure of equanimity in their reactions to the protests. What I think has happened is basically the president deciding to suspend, that's why I use the word suspend, to suspend parliament in order to appoint a new prime minister so that the relation between the executive and the presidency would be smoother. And these problems with COVID, which inevitably impacted upon the economy, I mean, tourism, which is one of the main incomes of Tunisia, has pretty much died because of COVID, and the economy has tanked in the country. So in a sense, He wants to sort of get Tunisia back on its feet and he's acted. So if it is a 30-day suspension only, my reading of uh, the Tunisian constitution is that he would be allowed to do that. But of course, we have to be careful that this does not then become the usual routine we see country in, country out, whereby we start with one or two little measures and then we like what we're doing and we take assume power and become dictators. I am not yet convinced that that is what Qaisis Ayyad, the president, wants to do. I think he felt threatened. I think he was worried about the future of the country. I think the Islamist and Nahda 
party, which is the largest number of seats in parliament, committed some very egregious uh, mistakes in uh, parliament and therefore made relations between the president, the prime minister and the party even more difficult than they should have been. All this brought this situation whereby today we are facing the uncertainty that we are facing. Point number one, would the 30-day suspensions only remain a suspension and parliamentary activity would be resumed? Second, who and what is the prime minister who's going to be appointed to replace Hisham Msheshi? And thirdly, would the freedoms that Tunisia exceptionally has gained, that Tunisians have gained, contrary to what in other countries where it's much, much worse, how is all this going to be done? Now, am I being an apologist for what other lawyers and other politicians would call a coup d'etat? Maybe, but what I'm doing is I'm tempering my legal reaction by knowing the region and knowing that sometimes you have to look at the situation and not really make too many distinctions between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. If this one-month suspension helps uh, Tunisia cope with COVID better, helps its economy, and does not impinge, impact the freedoms that it has gained since December 2010 and the death of Mohammed Bouazizi, which triggered the whole movement in the country and regionally, then I would say, fine, it's another one of those stations as the region grows up in terms of citizenry, in terms of rights. If, on the other hand, it goes to his head and he starts applying more and more power because he feels that he can get away with it or he feels that the army is supporting him or the opposition parties, because even the political parties are evenly divided between those who are supporting his action and those who aren't. If this happens and we have more turmoil, then I might re-examine my own position. But that's where I am. And in a sense, what I'm trying to tell you as a lawyer and as somebody who watches and who knows a bit the region, it's exactly what Joe Biden said and the US administration said, but in their own words about, we are not sure that this is a coup d'etat. Well, I mean, the way they're putting it is different from the way I put it. You can sense the hesitation in my voice. But I think, I think I would say, given the provisos and given the exclusion clauses that I've already set out as a consequence of what happened a couple of nights ago, I would say maybe if it helps Tunisia, let's not make too much out of it because otherwise we might throw the country into even more pandemonium. Now, I actually agree with that, but I'm going to challenge it somewhat. Okay. Whilst whilst acknowledging that you have that understanding of of the way these types of things move in various different country realities across the Middle East, North Africa, I would say the only thing that worries me, and it is that slippery slope point you, you made at the end there, the pandemic, in a sense, gives a lot of world leaders, not just in the Middle East, North Africa, 
that excuse to be a little bit more heavy handed in the way of we have to control this, which means we have to control the people to a certain extent. So I think this is almost like, how can I put it? a potential coup in the time of the pandemic, i.e. you test the water, you see how it goes, you get a bit firm because you think, you know, it, it's going to look as if you're doing it for the people in the longer term. And yet, if it seems to be the case that that control is furthering your power and aspirations, maybe you'll push a bit harder. Is the pandemic technically an excuse for a coup? James, I wouldn't disagree with one word of what you said. And this is why I'm sort of a little bit ambivalent about my own reactions to it, both as a lawyer and as a political analyst. I'm a little bit careful about how I'm looking at it. And yes, you're absolutely right. Everywhere, and we're not only talking about the MENA and Gulf regions, we're talking about the whole world where you have a pandemic as nasty and frightening as COVID, then a lot of politicians use that in order to exercise their powers in the most frightening way possible. I do not dispute that, nor would I dispute that that is very possi a possibility in the context of what we witnessed a couple of nights ago uh, happen in Tunisia, when suddenly, uh, you know, it reminds me, we, we used to say this about... Um, uh, British politics as well, and Ian Duncan Smith, when he was the leader of the Conservative Party, there was that thing about, oh, will the lion roar? Uh, and uh, in a sense, this tame, petite, small, diminutive man suddenly roared. And people thought, wow, what's he done? Is he basically one of those people with dictatorial instincts and tendencies who's using COVID, who's using the economy, which is in a parlous state, in order to uh, do a, execute a coup d'etat which would give him unfettered powers and we return to this favorite proclivity of rulers across the world of it's only me, it's only me and nobody uh, else? Is it possible that that is some, I don't know, I'm not in his head, but I somehow, knowing the Tunisian people's attitude, knowing the reaction of the Tunisian people in December 2010, when the whole Arab Spring movement started, knowing the way how the army there, of all places, contrary to what happened in other places like Egypt and uh, uh, Syria and other uh, where the army did not commit the atrocities that we have witnessed elsewhere, given the nature and the temperament of the people in Tunisia, but also the little that I've seen of this man, and I've heard him speak, and he has a very, very particular way of speaking when he speaks in Arabic. It's almost like when he talks, I don't know whether consciously or unselfconsciously, it feels like he's lecturing you. Whatever... It is, I mean, when I put these things together and when I see the, the sort of uh, overreaching by some political parties in terms of their agendas in the country and how there was an increasing polarization between the secular Tunisians and the more religious Islamists constituencies within Tunis itself as a whole, and we're not only talking about the capital, we're talking about the whole country. 
And I look at the neighborhood, and the neighborhood is not a very safe uh, neighborhood conducive to relaxation. I would say maybe I can give the man some leeway in terms of seeing how he's going to react. But for me, that's very important. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish off on a point uh, as well that as a lawyer, I, I was talking this to a colleague of mine uh, who also does uh, constitutional law. I'm not a constitutional law expert. I'm an international lawyer. He was a constitutional lawyer. And we were discussing this. And I told him, I said, listen, one thing that I noticed is when this whole thing erupted and the news started telling, oh, the parliament has been closed, parliament has been suspended, etc. The, the, the president has invoked Article 80 of the Constitution. The first few hours, almost the night that preceded the next day's clarifications, the headlines were, the president has used Article 80 to suspend parliament. And I was getting very uncomfortable with that because I knew from the little that I have studied and worked on uh, Tunisia, and I like Tunisia, I have some stories in Tunisia, uh, I thought, uh, I don't like this because Article 80 gives you 30 days only. If you want to extend the suspension, you have to go to the constitutional court and they would decide, they would judge whether you can do it or not. And I began, began feeling a bit uneasy. And then guess what? A few hours later, the narrative changed. And they started saying, presidents, advisors, and his mouthpieces started saying, oh, this is a 30-day suspension only, which is why I put the exclusion clause. And I said, we have a reality, James. It's happened. Parliament gates are shut. The parties aren't allowed to go in uh, to conclude and continue with their parliamentary sessions. There was supposed to be one yesterday, actually, uh, in Parliament, which was, of course, uh, cancelled. And again, at the risk of sounding a little bit meek and apologist enough, I would say I would like to see a bit more where this goes before I raise the decibels and before I talk to you and to others and I suggest to our listeners that they should be worried because don't forget, I mean, of, uh, in addition to everything else, there are lots of Brits who, who used to go to Tunisia for their summer holidays. Uh, so in a sense, I'm, I'm sort of reserving judgment just a little bit conscious though I am that I'm sort of hesitating as I try to explain where uh, I am in this whole thing. I mean, we lawyers, we like to think in terms of black and white, and here I am dabbling with the shades of grey. <laughs> well, I won't have you stand up in court and, and swear to these things, Harry, but it is a, it's a, a very good piece of analysis, and I found it very interesting, which is why and, and I apologise to our listeners, I've kind of let Tunisia dominate this podcast a little bit. But we are going to move on. I was going to ask you about your personal it experiences. Games. It should dominate because, yeah, to be yeah. honest with you, in addition to everything else and the fact that it's key because it was the leader of the spring movement, if the sense of exceptionalism that Tunisia brought into the discourse of all the Arab intellectuals, all the Arab observers, writers, thinkers, if Tunisia also collapses then you wonder, I mean, is there really no hope? 
for the region. And this is a region where I've worked as a lawyer, as a patented trademark, as an intellectual property lawyer. This is a place where uh, I remember the days when Yasser Arafat used to be cooped up in one of the houses there on his way out of exile before he came uh, to Ramallah during the uh, halcyon Oslo days. Some people would dispute the word halcyon there. And uh, so in a sense, Tunisia is important. And I thank you for starting with Tunisia and giving me the opportunity to try and uh, explain a little bit where I stand on the matter, even though my explanations might slightly uh, be unconvincing to some people. Oh, well, I think it's, I found it fascinating, to be quite honest with you. And also, uh, I'd certainly acknowledge it's a very difficult thing to nuance. But with the, you know, I don't want to risk sort of relegating Iraq and Lebanon to afterthoughts, because they're obviously not, even in the context of, of this podcast. But I think you're right to say that Tunisia should have dominated proceedings. Lebanon, Harry, if we can move on to Lebanon. Now, I watched a recent YouTube upload that you popped up there, where you described both Lebanon and Iraq, actually, as in inverted commas, almost failed states. So again, you're, you're, you're getting towards saying something very strong and just hesitating for the time being, I guess, because time will tell, as it were. And um, yeah, let's start with Lebanon, because we've talked about this in the last couple of podcasts as well, actually, you know, the economic meltdown, power shortages, medicine and hygiene product shortage, even UNICEF has warned that you know, Lebanon risks losing access to safe water. I mean, these are the types of comments you hear from famine zones and so forth, don't you? So it's pretty terrifying, I would say. And there is news, of course. There's a new prime minister designate, uh, the billionaire businessman Najib Mikati. I hope I've pronounced that right, but I know that you'll you'll put me straight otherwise. Now that's, you know, there's some Christian dissatisfaction at this announcement as well. So Lebanon, I don't want to call it a total mess, but it it sort of feels like it. Where do we start with Lebanon, Harry? Well, we've done a lot uh, on Lebanon in the past, James, so hopefully I will uh, talk less about Lebanon because most of our uh, faithful listeners will have already heard me talk about the free fall, the meltdown, my concerns, my deep concerns about Uh, Lebanon and where it is going. What I would say, and you basically summarized it very succinctly and beautifully in the sense that you've thrown in all the factors that actually uh, control, dominate, uh, threaten the stability of uh, Lebanon in a rather uh, volatile uh, region. The only thing, if I may, and here I'm being a little bit uh, picky, just for the sake of our listeners, James, when you said some Christian uh, dissatisfaction about what's happening politically, it's not Christian dissatisfaction as much as it is the Christian political parties in Lebanon. Ah, yes, an important distinction. It is an important distinction. I'm only saying this so people won't come back and say, what do you mean Christians are unhappy? So, uh, Having said that, I will start with the end of your uh, summation, which is that finally, finally, a new uh, prime minister designate was yesterday approved by parliament with 72 votes, which was quite impressive, actually, who said, yes, it's his task now to try and form a government upon the failure failure of his 
predecessor, the other prime minister designate, Sheikh Saad al-Hariri, who did not manage to do it. And the reason he did not manage to do it, amongst others, is because there were huge tensions between the then prime minister designate and the president of the republic, namely Saad al-Hariri and Michel Aoun. Now we have a new billionaire. Yes, he's a billionaire. He's one of the wealthy Arabs of the region, and he hails from Tripoli, uh, supposed to be the second uh, most important uh, city in uh, in the north of uh, the country. Now, where would I place all this, and what would I say about this? Because you also highlighted the issues: medicine, water, petrol. Uh, food, uh, the Lebanese currency plummeting, and all the rest of it, and people saying, where are we going? Is this, as somebody described it to me recently, is Lebanon now the Venezuela of the Middle East? And what I would say is Najib Mekati, who accepted the task of forming the new government yesterday, will not have, in my opinion, done so were it not for the fact that he got reassurances either domestically from the Lebanese political parties and the movers and shakers or from the international community. And by international community, I will basically specify three countries, the United States, France, and Saudi Arabia, that they will support his efforts at putting a government uh, together. And those international guarantees and the reassurances he might have received from some of those who opposed his predecessor Sunni political counterpart, Saad al-Hariri, might have convinced him to uh, go ahead with this rather fraught and very risky thing, because Being designated as prime minister is one thing. Forming a government that all parties in a hugely confessional country where it's confessions, not citizenship, that prevails, uh, where it's hugely difficult to, uh, to pull the rabbit out of the hat. I mean, it's going to be, it's not the same thing. He's got a task ahead of him. But... If there is a deal, and the Lebanese are so good at deal-making, if there is a deal that has been struck and he is going to be allowed to form a government that will have a half-decent agenda and that w- whose manifesto will lead Lebanon into the parliamentary elections next year, which is what everybody is beginning to think of already now in Lebanon, then I think the 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 symbolism of his designation will become even stronger if he were to manage and pull the rabbit again out of the hat and have his government and his cabinet ready by the 4th of August, which is only a week, eight days away from us. And why do I pinpoint on the 4th of August? The key reason is that the 4th of August would be the first anniversary of that dreadful, dreadful explosion at the port in in Lebanon, 
which incidentally has not yet been dealt with uh, legally. I mean, we've been talking about, yes, this judge wants to interview that person. This ammonium nitrate shouldn't have been there. Uh, this came from Syria. No, this was going to Syria. All this thing, there's a lot of tittle-tattle happening, but nothing yet that is distilled into legal or political clarity. So the anniversary, the first anniversary of the explosion is the fourth, and that 4th of August last year traumatized so many Lebanese in the capital, Beirut. And it was probably one of the most dreadful events that could have happened. I know people who lost houses, who lost everything as a consequence of that. So if the government is ready by the 4th of August 2021, that is huge symbolism. And it couples itself a parallel with another symbolism, which is that France, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, and uh, the United Nations Secretary General are going to have an, another aid conference in Paris on the 4th of, uh, of uh, August. And monies that are promised or have been promised and pledged for Lebanon by the World Bank, by the international community, by the international donors in previous uh, money-raising, fundraising conferences, this money will be forthcoming if there is a, a government. If there is no government, there is no money. There is no money, the free fall will continue. The free fall will continue what then? Where will uh, where will uh, Lebanon go? Will it be a question, the last person leaving, please switch off the lights? So hope is that by the 4th of uh, August, and I hope I'm not going to eat humble pie or you making me eat humble pie in our next uh, MEA episode, that something might happen by the 4th of August in order to instill hope in the Lebanese and encourage the international community, namely, again, France, Saudi Arabia, some others, Qatar has helped uh, Lebanon as well, and, of course, the United States, which at the moment is still tiptoeing in a sort of namby-pamby way about uh, Lebanon. If this comes together, then I'll say, ooh, I can take a breath and say, well, maybe there is hope. Otherwise, I'm very, very pessimistic. Well, uh, you might not be able to hear this, Harry, but I'm scribbling away. 4th of August, was Harry prophetic or not? So that is a note for the next podcast. You are absolutely you're right. Kind. <laughs> you're very kind the way you put it. Was Harry prophetic or not? You did not say you're scribbling down. Will Harry eat humble pie on the 4th of August? Well, I am seeing a little head in a block here, Harry. Yes, that's in my <laughs> mind's eye. I'm just being polite. No, I mean, yeah, I think you're you're right to look at it that way. And it is a country that it does feel like a dagger to the heart, doesn't it? Because I know, you know, my idea was that we'd have a bit of a Beirut coffee shop type of approach to this podcast with with sort of the flavor, the experiences, the culture, perhaps talking about times in Lebanon long before now that, that we're just thriving, bustling, full of energy, you know, what, what the people are like. And that's what I wanted to do, really, get get behind the stories to the culture and the people. But we've not really succeeded in that. But I do want to take a couple of minutes to ask you about, you know, your views on Lebanon and, and how you first experienced the country. Let, let's go into a few of those experiences quickly, Harry. So when did you first set foot in Lebanon? Do you remember? 
Oh my God, I was I was in shorts. I was a, a kid. It was before I even went to school to France. Uh, I was really a kid, a few years old, hardly. And uh, to put it in context, uh, James, my dad did his medical studies uh, at the Jesuitical University in Beirut. So my dad, and before that, he went to a boarding uh, school, the La Salle School in Beirut as well. And uh, he was very pro-Beirut. He loved the country, and he later used to tell me about the country. This is this is uh, going back uh, to the uh, late fifties, uh, and he used to love it. And uh, after that, of course, when he graduated, uh, he left uh, the country, went uh, to Paris, and then from there he practiced his profession. But uh, so. In a sense, Lebanon runs in the in the family genes before I was born. And then after that, when I was a tiny little kid, uh, my mom and dad used to go from Jordan to Lebanon for weekends. And we would sort of board the plane and go just for the weekend. And I would look at in amazement at Lebanon because, okay, uh, thankfully, I thank my lucky stars that I come from a comfortable family, so I wasn't wanting for much uh, when I was growing up in Jordan. But you used to go into Lebanon, and then you would understand why everybody used to say Lebanon is the uh, Paris or the Switzerland of the Middle East. It was a different culture. It was a different frame of life. And so that's when I started going to Lebanon, and then after that, of course, I continued with my life in France and the UK and uh, uh, Cyprus and elsewhere professionally. And somehow uh, I did a full circle because uh, I joined at some stage in my life, I joined the Middle East Council of Churches as uh, uh, assistant General Secretary, and the MECC, or the Middle East Council of Churches, the foremost ecumenical representative of all the churches of the MENA region, Orthodox, Catholic, and Reform. The headquarters was in Lebanon. So it was really going back to Lebanon. And I used to enjoy going and walking in front of the American University of Beirut and see that wonderful tree that everybody identifies as being one of the one of the characteristics of the AUB in Beirut and then met lots of people and of course Lebanon other than Iran had the largest Armenian community in the region and therefore there was the ethnic side which also helped the food helped i mean uh, you could eat and find things there that you wouldn't find elsewhere i remember my grandfather who was a businessman and a very well off business man for the times he lived in he used to go to lebanon and then he would buy all sorts of stuff and bring back uh, to us in Jordan and uh, things that you wouldn't find in other countries in the region. And you're going to laugh. I'm, I'm not only talking about designer uh, clothes for his, uh, for his young uh, grandson because he used to spoil me rotten, but he used to also bring things like uh, uh, Japanese meddlers or what we call kumquats, those fruits that are delicious, orange-looking fruits which have big uh, brown stones in them and big, big luscious cherries 
in big brown wooden boxes, which you would never find in any other country, whether it's Jordan or any other country at the time. All this sort of enriched the memories. And then, of course, I drifted away when I grew up in France and then uh, went and continued my studies. And then suddenly I was facing Lebanon again. And after that, I got to know uh, people. I formed uh, very, very strong uh, friendships, relationships with many people in uh, in uh, Lebanon. I don't want to embarrass them by giving names of men and women that I've come to know. The freedom that Lebanon had at the time, which has now been shaken quite considerably, where if you wanted to publish something, if you wanted to find something to read, if you wanted freedom of expression, journalism, all this was Lebanon. And then, of course, things began getting weaker. Lebanon began losing its uh, its distinctiveness a little bit. And of course, today, from the Switzerland of the Middle East, Lebanon is being called the Venezuela of the Middle East. And that, for me, is sad. And if my dad were alive, he would be very sad as well because he probably knew Lebanon better than I and he loved it as much, if not more than I. Well, you know, I, I find it very moving, actually, Harry, and we, we hear much analysis from afar on the Middle East and North Africa region, which is the main reason I actually wanted to go into your personal experiences. Fascinating to hear your stories, Harry. This really, in a sense, is is three podcasts isn't it really we've just mashed it all into one for summer so i hope our listeners will forgive us but i did want to finish with iraq because it's another of those so-called potentially failed states that you were referring to in your analysis uh, on youtube we know the u.s troops are likely to pull out by the end of the year there is that u.s iran spat that always hangs over there are many things aren't there obviously i, su- I suppose the, the only question there to ask you, because we've covered it many times in recent times, is how would you assess Iraq's current vulnerabilities and the impact on its people? Very vulnerable, very, very vulnerable indeed. And Iraq is another country I have memories and stories to tell you. So maybe, James, your challenge is one day to tell me, Harry, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to do what I want to do, which is a... A, a program on your uh, stories and memories, and I'm quite happy to do that before I die. So let's uh, let's do that one day. Uh, but uh, Iraq is a very vulnerable country indeed, and uh, all I would say for the sake of brevity is that uh, recently, and when I say recently, I only mean a couple of days ago, U.S. President Joe Biden and the Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa Al-Qadhimi, uh, they met in uh, Washington, D.C., the first, of course, the first Arab leader who went to see Joe Biden after he became president is uh, the King of Jordan, King Abdullah II, and that was last week, and that was brilliant. I did a little bit of coverage of that on social media and some of my interviews. You wouldn't be surprised at all, and you wouldn't fall off your chair if I tell you now even virtually, if I tell you now that I'm very fond of Jordan and I think that Jordan is an oasis of stability in a region that is very, very 
polarized. But I'm digressing. So after that, uh, Mustafa al-Qadami, the prime minister of Iraq, went there and together, hot on the heels of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, actually, the Iraqis and the Americans sealed an agreement that formally ended. And this is where I would slightly tweak again what you just said. They ended the U.S combat mission in Iraq by 2021. It's been 18 years, since 2003, that the Americans have been uh, there in combat status. Now, by the end of this year, that will end. However, those 2,500 or however many uh, U.S. Army personnel there are will still remain, probably redeployed a bit, but will still remain and continue to be available in the country to assist, to train, and wait for this. I thought this was quite interesting. And it said in the statement they made, the joint statement, that the Americans who will stay there in non-combat mission status will also be there to deal uh, with ISIS. Uh, for me, I remove ISIS, I put Iran instead. But uh, it's very interesting because I would say that uh, the Prime Minister of Iraq did not want the Americans to leave completely. He got what he wanted. They're going to stay, albeit in a different uh, format. Why didn't he want them to go? Because the Iraqis are in a very difficult situation. They're in a tug of war between America on the one hand and Iran on the other. And that tug of war is very beneficial for Iraq because it can play one against the other and maintain its own, uh, between inverted commas, independence. Whereas if the Americans totally leave, then it would be tabula rasa, it would be open land for the Iranians to completely take over uh, Iraq. And the Iraqis, including Mustafa al-Qadami, the prime minister, don't want that. So having those token 2,500 or so uh, American soldiers there would be a deterrent for that and would help the Iraqis use them, as it were, in maintaining a kind of a leverage between uh, the two sides. So uh, in addition to that, of course, we were talking about uh, Tunisia and we talked about COVID. Iraq is not any better than uh, Tunisia. And I noticed that one of the things that they agreed upon was that the Americans would use the COVAX uh, vaccine sharing program in order to supply uh, Iraq with loads of Pfizer and other uh, COVID vaccine uh, supplies. So in a sense, this was the, the trade-off. But the question I would ask, instead of you asking me, James, is was mission accomplished? Do you remember 2003 in May of 2003, uh, the Americans, uh, the American president then uh, stood on the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier, and there was a banner which said, mission accomplished. And everybody made fun of that by saying, hold on, the Bush presidency is saying mission accomplished. Really? And today, 18 years later, I can say that the mission has not yet been accomplished. In the sense that this is the, 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 the pains, the pangs, the difficulties are still there. We're seeing developments, we're seeing things evolve in different uh, ways, but 
certainly not in 2003, and I'm not sure that in 2021 U.S. mission has actually been accomplished. It has assumed a different facade, a different facet, a different uh, format. And hopefully, hopefully, as Iraqis, like the Lebanese, are gearing up for their own elections, that they will have a result that will give them the kind of stability that they, the citizens, the people, the men and women of Iraq yearn for. But when I look at Iraq, when I look at Tunisia, when I look at Lebanon, when I look at Libya, when I look at Yemen, when I look at all these countries in the region, I really sort of wonder when are we going to have that breakthrough and maybe it's going to come in little little drops and doses and i think this latest agreement between qadhimi and uh, biden might be one of those drops in that big pail i'm going to ask you a tough one harry if um, because you know there are some parallels with the deterioration in iraq and in lebanon you said that lebanon went from being widely recognized as the switzerland of the middle east to potentially the Venezuela of the Middle East, what would be your comparison for Iraq? You know, the saving grace, James, of Iraq, other than the fact that like Lebanon, like Egypt, like Jordan, like Palestine, it's one of the cradles of civilization. So these places have history. But one of the saving graces of Iraq, which Lebanon lacks, is that it is one of the richest oil countries in the world. And therefore, that is a source of hope for Iraq, that no matter the indescribable corruption, the daylight robbery, the sort of mismanagement and misrule in the country, there is always one hopeful sign in in Iraq that distinguishes it from countries like Lebanon and many others that you and I can mention, and that is their oil. And this is why I hope, I think, that it might even be slightly easier for uh, Iraq to turn the corner than it would for uh, Lebanon. Until now, the internal dissensions, the internecine conflicts within Iraq itself between uh, the Tishrinis, the Sadrists, the Tishrinis being the people who demonstrated uh, a couple of years ago in October, that's why they're called Tishrinists, uh, about dignity, freedom, etc., between the Sadrists, those who follow uh, Sadr, between the other uh, political factions. I mean, those tensions are still very much there. The proxy games that are being played with Iran wanting to have Iraq as one of its stations across that uh, region, uh, all these things are playing into the vulnerability of Iraq. The money it has, unfortunately, other people want it too before the people of Iraq get it. I mean, just think, second largest supplier of oil, and yet in a summer where I know uh, it gets up to 50 degrees Celsius in terms of how hot it is in Iraq, they don't have electricity, they have power cuts, no air conditions, nothing. This is a country that is basically gurgling with oil. 
and you wonder where is this money going? Is it going across the border? Are the borders porous? Is it going into the pockets, into the bottomless pockets of some people? All this is true. But as I said, one saving grace, that oil, hopefully, when when reason prevails, maybe that would help. And when outside powers, here and there, hither, thither, stop messing up, the region, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Palestine, whether it's any other country, then maybe the people of the country will indeed be able to get closer to that sense of dignity, freedom, and bread that they wanted when they started the movement with Bouazizi we spoke about in 2010. Well, you've taken us nicely to the end of our podcast, Harry. It's a uh... A rollicking hour through those three realities with a little bit of your experiences woven in. Thank you for that. It is summer. I'm sure you will be travelling to the region at some point, COVID permitting, health COVID permitting, permitting. <laughs> everything permitting. Um, but thank you for giving us your time ahead of that. And um, yeah, I look forward to catching up on these things. I won't hold you to the 4th of August <laughs> to see if actually, you know, something of note does happen. But we, we will keep our eye on those realities in Iraq, in Lebanon and of course in Tunisia. Harry, thank you ever so much. It's been a real pleasure and uh, good to have you with us once again for Middle East Analysis. And uh, thank you to you. I say this every time at the end of every single Middle East analysis we do monthly, James. Thank you for your solidarity. Thank you for your loyalty. And thank you for your friendship. And to all the people, be they in Tunisia, be they in uh, Iraq, be they in uh, Lebanon, all I would say to them all in the strongest sense of friendship, Allaikun ma'kum which translated roughly means, may God be with you all. Very well said, Harry. Have a good summer. <laughs>